Hi everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon. The show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is Josephine McCarris, who wrote, directed and produced her debut feature film, Alice. We jumped into Josephine's filmmaking career, the double standard women face within society and what her dream film project would be right before she headed off to South by Southwest and Alice stormed the film festival. So, if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Josephine. Just before we jump in with the film, I'd love to know a little bit more about your sort of like backstory, because I read from the impress notes that you grew up in Australia and, and China. And also, how did you kind of get into the arts in your formative years? I mean, I joined a theatre company at the age of nine, and I've just, that's just been my love and my passion for, you know, forever. And, you know, I played the saxophone and painted. So I guess filmmaking really synthesized all of that, the, you know, great writing and acting and music. And that's sort of the synthesis of everything I've always loved my whole life. I grew up in Australia and I, my father, you know, works half every year in China. When I was a kid, I went and lived there for a year. Um, but, you know, that's always been a big part of my life, China, because my parents. Because I imagine that's quite like the culture clash. How did those two sort of like countries sort of influence your um your filmmaking you know that's a hard question for me to answer because it's sort of I, I mean I guess I guess I've always been very open to other cultures I guess that's an influence it had on me I mean I've traveled I left Australia when I was 16 and mm-hmm. traveled lived in Europe and you know in Jerusalem and it just I guess it just opened me up you know the world is a small place yeah, I was gonna say that perhaps it's not necessarily the differences between the two places but just the idea that your POV on life or the world is is sort of far greater from having that sort of experience of sort of like traveling because I think yeah. often people can just get locked into a particular sort of point of view about life because they just haven't you know, haven't seen what's out there, the rest of the world. Absolutely. Because even my mother, you know, she worked with refugees my whole life. So, oh, really? And also Aboriginal communities. So, yeah, it's true. I've The more I think about it, yeah, I really, you know, we had refugees from Philippines and Vietnam and definitely grew up, you know, knowing Australia's not the be-all and end-all. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's one of the furthest, I guess, like coming from the UK, it's one of the furthest places away. So I just wanted to sort of touch upon because you, like myself, have studied, I studied in New York myself, I studied theatre and you studied filmmaking at NYU. So I was just sort of like curious about in terms of going through the idea of sort of like film education that what was the best piece of advice that your lecturers gave to you in class that you still use today? It's funny, good sound comes to first and foremost, I guess, because it's, you know, um, <laughs> good sound. Jeez, the best advice. Oh my goodness. Script is everything. Script is king and queen. And I think that's absolutely true. I was just wondering, because you're at NYU, did you have any um, famous guest lecturers that turned up? No, I heard a lot. But no, no, I didn't personally have anyone. Because I remember I had friends that went to one semester where uh, Martin Scorsese would occasionally drop in. Yeah, I know. I heard all about those too. And I mean, I got to see his first short. Yes, that's not everybody gets to see that. But see that he really had something to say, you know. I mean, right. I guess that's something that is really, I think it's important for a director, you know, that is, you know, they're really passionate about they've got something to say you know um and his i I mean i still remember that short film even though i didn't like it it was just something because it was there's a sort of violent element that i you know i have a problem with violence but 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 you know it was a really strong commentary about you know um what the subject which is about i think it was some war going on i can't remember something about the military i can't actually remember but i just remember 
I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. I still remember that film. So there you go. That's um, not every day you can say that about a short, you know, I've seen hundreds of short films and that one stays in my mind. So not because it's Martin Scorsese, but just because it was, it really had a powerful message and I got that message, you know. Yeah, I guess like it, tackling the most of evocative subject matter in a sort of like careful or considered or, or not, as long as it sort of stays with the audience, I guess that's just kind of, you know, for yeah. better or worse, that's kind of like what you're aiming for. So I just wanted to just quickly touch upon that you've written directed four short films leading up to your first feature, yeah. what you learned or how that prepared you for tackling your first feature. Oh gosh. I mean, it's, yeah, they were my schooling. Absolutely. I mean, but I, but then, you know, making a feature actually is the biggest schooling <laughs> because, you know, I mean, you know, the more you know, the more you know, you don't know. I realized um, early on, that's my, really my greatest love is working with actors. And I mean, I, you know, it's, I've just learned so much. I don't even know where to begin, but I realized also that shorts and features are very different mediums. Right. Successful short is a special talent in itself. Mm. And I think making a good feature is a, another talent. Yeah, I think in some ways that the um, short films like the short story and then obviously the features like the novel and I guess like people can be really great at sort of really catchy short film that people like wow for like five minutes but then holding somebody's attention for like two hours is a completely different art form and And I guess that's you know comes back to the writing absolutely I do think it's you know making a feature it's really a whole different writing ball game do you have like an elevator pitch for alice so it's about a woman who's sort of you know is really kind of a perfect wife and a perfect mother and she's after discovering her husband's addiction to high-end escorts she's left penniless Mm -hmm. and on the edge of eviction and she becomes drawn into the same sort of secretive world that's that's ruin them as a means of caring for herself and her child that's the elevator pitch so far have you been out to any sort of like festivals or or events with it and what kind of reactions have you been getting from audiences so far south by southwest is the world premiere okay so no i haven't i mean i've had you know just screen testing but you know not not like we hired a cinema or anything but just um people from who work in the industry you know and getting feedback and but yeah in terms of a public a real public no yeah the film was just finished about three days ago so that's the final Final sort of like locked edit you finished just three days ago. Yeah, when did you see the film? I saw it on Monday. Monday. So I think yeah, you saw the finished version. Did you? Oh, wow. or did it say still to be finished? No, there was no time code. There was no Yeah, there was no uh, there was no notes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so just jumping back to the genesis of this project, I just wondered what have been the three most pivotal moments from the journey of getting Alice from just an idea bouncing around in your head. Also, did you write it in English first and then translate or can you yeah. write in French? Yes, I wrote in English. And I worked with a translator. We worked okay. very closely together to get the French version. It's actually going to be set in London. I mean, oh, was I it? London. Yeah. I, um, well, I, I mean, I, it could have been, for me, it could have been set in London, New York or Paris. Mm. It wasn't, I wasn't really attached. It was just because I had a baby and then I didn't want, I wanted to shoot locally. And Right. But in terms of three pivotal moments, my God, there's, I, there's been so many. So when did you first kind of get an idea that you wanted to tell this sort of story? I actually did a screen um, writing class a week weekend um, a, a writer called Mark Tilton he had this exercise that was about joining opposite traits you know character traits mm-hmm. sort of like you know housewife hooker and you know anyway and then I kind of came up with this pitch and it sort of everyone in the class was like oh that sounds really good yeah and then I I, I, went, I sort of went away and really thought about it a lot of things that really interested me to work on 
and how it, it sort of joined. There was a sort of a political, there's a political kind of element to the film and then there's mm-hmm. also much more intimate commentary about relationships and coming of age, even though she's, you know, 30. But, you know, and I guess there's just so many things that came in and joined together in that um, little synopsis I came up with years ago in a, in a writing class. Um, um, how long yeah. ago was it before you um, came up with the um, idea? So this was, yeah, so this was like years ago, maybe seven years ago. Oh, okay. But ideas stayed in the back of my mind and then lots of things happened since then that sort of joined it together and then I started writing a script, which is often, happen- you know, that's often the way. You'll have something, you know, in your mind for years and then before you actually sit down in front of the computer and actually write, which was definitely the case with Alice. I mean, that's seven years is really quick for a feature film because it can take 20 years to <laughs> to, to sort of get that. So that's really, um, that's really impressive from like the inception of the idea and then to shooting and, and editing. And I, I wondered, like, how long did the first draft take you to write? And how many drafts did you write before you showed anybody the, the script? My idea was I wanted about a couple that stayed together. Right. So I sort of banged my head on trying to make that work for, I don't know, gosh, so long. Um, and, and it didn't. It just, in a, I, it maybe in a TV series, mm-hmm. you have something in a relationship where, you know, one of the partners does something so, you know, turns out they've got a, a real problem, mm-hmm. you know, and, and destroys the family financially and, you know, abandons her and then comes back and that maybe that, you know, the, the idea that they stay together would be an interesting television series because I think it happens. It happens all the time. Mm. You know? And it's a yeah. much more complex interest. I mean, I think that's an interesting idea. But anyway, it didn't work. In terms of a film, it didn't work. Yeah, so that took a long time to get to that point where I realised, no, he had to have to break up. And then it, it turned into hot something else hmm. again. When did you first start showing this sort of script? I worked on it alone for a long time. Probably was around two, 2016 or something. I got I, I got um, official selection at the Atlanta um, Film Festival for oh, okay. um, unproduced screenplay. Right. So that was nice. It was kind of a really nice encouragement. And then that's when I think I started showing it to producers. Because I, actually, no, I always wanted to do – after the whole co- – kerfuffle with my other feature I really wanted to do it on my own but then it started getting a lot of really really positive responses and it's like no this is good enough you've got to find a producer and so I went I wasted time trying to do that I had producers who were really interested but then we would always headbutt on you know on um, particularly around the prostitution thing producers didn't know how they would defend that that you know because it is sort of a it's a grey area. I think we've got we don't have a problem with the victim side of it. I mean, I, we all understand that that the the sort of victimisation that happens within the industry mm-hmm. that a woman could do it and not feel those and not feel degraded and not, that's something that's I, I I don't know why that's taboo. There's something very taboo about that. It's interesting. And I'm probably getting trouble for saying this. I don't have a problem with transactional sexual relationships. As long as, you know, the parties are professional and the, and the terms which are agreed upon are met, that you don't necessarily have to be a victim or exploited. What mostly fascinates me about that is what it sort of says about our, you know, unconscious sort of attitudes anyway. I, there's something like, it's almost like we've got a problem with how powerful women and women's sexuality can be i think there is a real there is a sort of privilege as well that comes with being a young beautiful woman Mm. in the world i mean there is you know i it's it's um it's i mean you you know i feel as a woman who's getting older you know Mm. i don't you know you get it's interesting in my 20s i do you know you you 
you, you just get the very nice treatment from men wherever you go. <laughs> As you get older, you get less and less visible. More, you, know, you start feeling more and more visible. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it's uh, it, and I don't know why it's sort of so um, controversial to to talk about that. You know, mm. that that there is a sort of power that is um, that I think if men could make the kind of money that is a, that is possible for women in the industry, um, maybe we'd have a different discussion around this. I mean, I, I just I remember seeing a um, what was this show called? Gigolos, G- oh, yeah, Gigolos. right? The male version. I mean, there's almost there's a, that's almost affectionate, isn't it? A gigolo. Mm. It was just so interesting because you know um, there was a, a TV series made about gigolos, and it really went into you know how much they help women. You know, mm. they help women through divorces or you know um, finding sexual confidence or, but you know their their own career ambitions, and it's like. That's so interesting. Can you even imagine a, a, a series like that about women in the industry? Why, what, you know, you know, have sort of this affectionate t- term for these hookers and mm. how they help men and you know what beautiful people they are and you know they've mm. got these career ambitions. Maybe I'm stating the obvious, but there is this real, there is a double standard. There, there is, is, yeah. I also think that in terms of like, if you are sort of like a sex worker, there are certain people suited to like certain jobs. Working a nine to five for some people would be, you know, they just can't do it. They wouldn't be able to exist in society and maybe they'd be sort of like homeless. But things like, I guess, like being like a, a sex worker sort of fits their sort of like personality type. Sure, like if that's how you have to navigate your way through life or a certain, por- a certain portion through your life, I don't understand what necessarily the, the, the issue with that is there are two ways of looking at it because we live in a, a sort of this you know capitalist world where we do there is a kind of lack of humanity it's it's all about you know market value and blah 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 and i don't think women are responsible or you know just mm. as a culture where you know individuals can be held responsible for that and yet why is it that women get judged when they take advantage of a system they didn't necessarily mm. create but that you know Mm. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's sort yeah, of yeah, uh, I do. It, it's uh, you know, I mean, I I'm not pro or against mm. prostitute. I mean, you know, I, I like I'm certainly not. I don't think it's a, you know, any girl you know dreams of you know when she grows up being a hooker. But the but the reality yeah. this is sort of interesting in the research because it was very easy to talk to um you know women who work sort of in the lower end. It's almost like the sort of identification with being a hooker was um, is sort of less of a problem for them. I don't know why, but the higher you go, often mm. the less they I, they want to be they want to be associated with it because they've got career ambitions or they're in university or mm. they or I even spoke to one you know who was um, teaching at a university and she'd had she had um, she'd done that for worked for a few years um you know so they 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 don't want to be associated and i think that's sort of interesting because Mm. it is sort of like a stepping stone you know they want a powerful mortgage or they you know they've got goals financial goals but they definitely know the repercussions um secretive and scared you know about and i think there's also a kind of a deep kind of shame that you know that's put on them i mean i think it's a you know it's over two thousand years old this sort of shame you know you know the whore and you know i mean my initial interest in that that part of the story came you know there was a big um i should get really clear about the dates and everything but lh splitzer in new york he was right. yeah 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 and i read the blog remember he so he he was um you know caught using public money mind yeah. you, which is a real offense yeah yeah uh, to, to, for you know high-end escorts and then two of the girls got outed. One of them was an English teacher. Do you remember this? Mm, and yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it was very interesting because two years later he was re-elected or everything was fine. But her, five years later, she still couldn't get a job. Mm. So, you know, once again, it was like, whoa, that's very interesting. There's a real double standard because, um, you know, why, you know, it's all, and she, I think she wrote, you know, once a, hooker, once a whore, always a whore, you know. You can't, there's a very big stigma. So, anyway, once again, I'm not you know, interested in, I mean, it's not my kind of um, war to defend hookers and, you know, that's like, oh, yeah. the right to be a hooker. I don't, but I, I am interested in what it sort of does say about society as a whole, you know, it's just what, it, you know, in, just in our average daily daily lives, those of us who aren't in that industry, I mean, it still must reflect something about how we feel about, you know, the difference between what, you know, men can get away with and what women can get away with. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I mean, one of the things about the sort of Alice's story that hit me the hardest was definitely the double standard of um, Francois sleeping with the escorts just made him a bad husband, but Alice working as an escort made her an unfit parent. It's quite a deep question because I think mm. it goes back to archetypes. It goes back to, you know, the, the Virgin Mary and the whore Mary, you know, it's sort of the split that we kind of know in Catholicism and, you mm. know, like you've got your mother and wife at home and she's mm. one you take care of and protect and she's holier than thou and then you've got your mistress, the whore, that you have great sex with. Mm. You can't join the two and that split that women have um, had in their sexuality for for centuries, you know, and I think, um, yeah, there's, it's, it's very interesting and it's sort of, I think it sort of does come back to the power in female sexuality. In terms of Francois' sort of like character, I thought it was interesting that how he views Alice in terms of like, oh, this person is a pure influence and wants to keep that separate. And then obviously the sort of stuff he's doing outside of the sort of marital home, that men's relationships with, a, with their mother is a difficult one because it's idea of the nurturer versus like lust and just reconciling those two things and also being able to bridge the gap and saying, well, this person can be a nurturer and also can be an object of, of lust I don't think I don't know why those things are sort of like too mutually exclusive and maybe that's more of a sort of psychological sort of like topic there definitely is that clash about keeping those things very very sort of separate yeah I know it is it's a split it's a it's the bipolarity of of sort of society when it comes to women and I think it's interesting because I do think it comes back to the mother mm. I mean I feel like our relationship with our mother it's sort of I mean we don't even know we're separate from our mother until the age of two, I think. Isn't mm-hmm. that what she's kind of like God, you know? I mean, she's everything. When we come out of the womb, and they're our deepest, most visceral, physical, emotional memories, this thing about need, you know, how much we need her. It's interesting how that clashes with um, in male psychology sort of cultures that, are, that have still, you know, won't give women the right to drive. Mm. You know, we yeah. have to confer from head to toe. Um, it's it's sort of this thing of needing to control something mm. that's so that has so much power over us. Uh, you know, I'm not sure there's a more powerful um, influence in our, uh, you know, in terms of in intimate relationships than our mother. You know, because you know, the more intimate relationship, the more intimate our relationship, the more it gets down to our deepest sort of needs and desires and if we were freaking breastfed or not i mean you know yeah yeah we know now how much things like that you know this sort of crying it out leaving a baby to scream for hours Mm. actually you know affect the brain and affect psychology it's sort of you know 
I mean, I guess it's complex. It's complex, and I feel like that there's something about in relationships when um, that I feel like Francois does. You know, he comes back to Alice, and she has to take him back, mm. like mother. She's you know, because a mother can forgive anything. You mm. know, the source of unconditional love. So he comes back to her with that same expectation. Going to come back and say, you know, on my knees and say, I. I need help and you, you've got to save me. And it's almost like a mother-child. And yeah. that's what I worry about Francois because I think he is he sort of stunted his growth somewhere in young childhood, you know, mm. but he has the power of a man with the needs of a, of a child, you know. I think that's not uncommon. <laughs> I mean, he's an extreme example. Mm. I don't think it's uncommon. I mean, in men and women. But, I mean, I think it's interesting for men towards women because – we have got this, I think, the female perfection or this ideal is what mm. often motivates men in love. You know, they look for this ideal. It's very difficult when you realize a woman is not, you know. But, I mean, there's sort of something about that female ideal that I think men uh, can be trapped by. Yes. You know, it's all mixed in. I'm talking about a lot of, there's a sort of a lot of trying to spin ten plates at once. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. No, that's fine. I mean, we're definitely getting like a deeper sort of sense of when you watch the movie, these sort of themes are definitely all bubbling up there. One of the things I was sort of interested by, I mean, was like the brittleness of the male ego. Right at the very beginning of the of the movie when they're having they're having this sort of dinner party scene and then Francois gives this lovely speech to Alice and passionately kisses her in front of their friends for, for too long and it gets a little bit unco- uncomfortable then within that sort of same scene you have him writing his sort of like novel it's taking him sort of 10 years to do so and then Alice makes that comment about you know Rome wasn't built in a day and there's just this lingering shot of him dealing with he's this very sort of like charismatic man a clever man but yet at some point has perhaps he feels he's sort of like failed in terms of his ambitions in sort of like life yeah I'm glad you picked that up because it's really important. I mean, Francois's character, I mean, I really, there's a big backstory to him. I think if Francois was less fucked up, he would be, he would be a writer. He would be mm. an artist. He would have all of this sort of damaged stuff in him would be channeled. Mm. And and I and the fact that he hasn't had kind of guts or whatever to see it through, you know, has created a really destructive thing in his personality. And it sort of is another theme in the film in a way, mm. you, know, uh, you know, about, you know, I, because I do think, you know, Francois, he does have a brilliance that got screwed up because he can't, he's too, you know, he's, he's, he's screwed up. <laughs> so he doesn't, you know, he's, mm. he's gone and done everything the right way and got married and had a kid and got this job that he hates and mm. he's doing everything right and mm. it's and it's killing him because I, th- I think Francois is sincere. I think he sincerely loves Alice and I think he um, right. could have been an option for Alice to stay with Francois and sort of be his nurse. Do you know what I mean? That, that, yeah, that yeah. is a story in that and I think that does, that happens. I think there's personalities like Francois really do exist and I think there's something devastating about when, you know, somebody really does have a lot to say and has been very screwed up from childhood and mm. and is very talented and but can't get it out. It sort of creates a split personality because I think Francois does live via his fantasies 
rather than you know rather than channel that into work he he's he's it's he's taken an easier path of kind of creating a kind of a fantasy life so from your perspective in the context of the story i just wondered would it have been worse if francois had cheated on us with like i say like a co-worker or using the escort service and the reason why i ask is because i'm kind of interested in the idea of like emotional intimacy versus mm. just purely physical yeah. intimacy i do think it would be a lot worse mm. yes I mean, for the marriage, absolutely. Because you're right. It's because this sort of exchange that you can, with a hooker, where you can just project whatever fantasy or you can, I mean, it's all about creating your own fantasy rather than joining with another human being and discovering each other. You know, that's much more threatening to a relationship or marriage. Yeah, I do yeah. as well, because I think the, the idea with the affair is that it always starts with an emotional intimacy and bond that's formed over a period of time versus I'm here for an hour with this person, it's anonymous, and then it's kind of like done. Exactly. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I've had, um, it's interesting because I remember talking to a girl saying she had a, she had a client that was a, kind of a famous rock star. She said she really respected that he would come and pay and he said to her, he pays to leave. Mm. It's, and it's interesting because, you know, if you take a fan, like because this person would have, he'd probably have a choice of 20 girls that want to go there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he doesn't do that. It's respectful because, you know, you leave and it, there's no game. It's all up yeah. front. And she's very happy that you leave and it's actually very respectful. So just jumping back into the filming of Alice. So you're shooting in Paris. And I was thinking, did you ever think about making the sex scenes more explicit? No, I, you know, it's because I wanted it from her point of view and she's detached, you know, and I really wanted it to be that sort of cold transaction that she is experiencing. I don't like to generalise in terms of male and female filmmakers in terms of what they're going to shoot and what they're not going to shoot and how they're going to shoot it. But it is interesting how, say, if you'd written a script and you'd given it to a male director of the kind of things that they would have pulled out from it visually. And I don't necessarily think it's all that true. They say that men are are more visual in in some regards. Do you mean sexually or...? Well, I think sexually in terms of men are going to notice just certain things about women, physical things first, perhaps. I think that's true. In terms of the story i'd be interested to know how a male director might you know it still comes back to that thing if you're telling where you want Mm. the audience to be focusing and if Mm. it's getting into raunchy sex which is not what really the film is about yeah because that could completely sidetrack your story because that's not something you're necessarily dealing with explicit sex and then you have that in there it kind of pulls focus from elements within the movie yeah yeah exactly what was your toughest scene um, to shoot as a director uh when francois comes back because i knew that i wanted something completely explosive we kind of improvised around it i had marks the moments that i wanted to find we did a rehearsal and we improvised around it and they did a really amazing improv and i was like okay i'm just going to write the structure and we're just going to go around that and they were like no 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 it's fine it's fine it's fine well it wasn't fine and i did um conséquence. how do you say that in english where you shoot the whole thing in one go oh like a wanna god yeah they're very virtuosic it was terrible because we didn't have the blocking i mean it was just a nightmare and it was a nightmare in the edit it was painful to find that scene because what do you call it you know the block was different but that you know you live and learn live and learn so you've got the breakdown at the very beginning with Alice she's on the phone she's in a room there isn't much going on like how you edit it you build a sort of like pace like it doesn't get stagnant it doesn't get boring and I wondered if you had a very clear vision going in with that actually in the edit script is a bit like that and Mm. I guess it comes from my fear of boring an audience I mean which you can do so easily it's terrible but that thing of just you have to keep this going 
like it's got to keep going. I guess that, you know, the edit, like the first rough cut was three hours and, okay. you know, just it's just a really long process of just, mm. you know, when is this moment up? And I can still see in the film, I think, oh, my God, that really is not good enough, but, oh, God, it's too late, you know. So on the page, was it broken up? Yep, yep. And then, then you sort of just picking out those moments of knowing what you wanted. But I have to say it got all reduced, you know, like, mm. you know, I mean, I guess editing is really about getting rid of what you don't, need and just mm. for the essentials and i mean i still think i could have done another good two weeks on the edit which i didn't have that time i mean who was that famous writer who said i'm sorry this letter is so long i didn't have time to write you a shorter one <laughs> What's, what is what, i can't remember who said that but that's yeah, um it, I, there's nothing truer than that there's true so i did yep. want to ask when you were locked away in the editing bay was there any particular films you kept coming back to really honest no because i was editing 10 hours a day and then i also live alone with a five-year-old Oh, okay. I just didn't have time to do anything. I certainly have filmmakers and films that I love. That question maybe more so when I was talking to my DP. Right. Before the shoot, I'd come to films and um, Susan Beer, you know, I mm-hmm. love her earlier films. I just love them. And Lynn Ramsey. So, I mean, uh, yeah. But, yeah, in the editing, no. Because at the moment there's a big thing about within the entertainment industry of seeing people on screen or behind the camera saying that you can aspire to, like, say, a filmmaker like Lynn Ramsey. And I just wondered coming up through wanting to be a filmmaker, director, an artist, in terms of seeing other women do it, did you feel that there was a huge, I mean, obviously there is, but a huge vacuum, and were you aware of that? I mean, I guess when I look at a film, I just don't think about that. Mm. But it's interesting that they're both women and there's so few women, and they're the one, they're the films that, that speak to me, you know, mm. deeply. But even Milos Foreman, his early films, mm. I mean, he's just one of the world greats. But it's true, there's something about the way they capture humanity. The fact they're women is actually just a coincidence. It really is. I haven't really thought the whole thing about being a woman. I guess when I was younger, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember I because I've always been in the theatre and I've loved acting, and I just remember and I remember wanting to make films from you know literally sort of seventeen, eighteen years old. Really, you know, the idea of making just you know my goal that would be the best job in the world. And I remember a filmmaker I respected saying to me, "Oh, actresses can't make films," and I just bought it. Mm. So, oh, yeah, I can't do that. No. I can't even imagine a, a young woman buying that bullshit today. Most people would say, fuck you, I'm doing it anyway. The thing that you start out doing may not be that the thing you end up doing, but having that passion and that tenacity to move forward, that's something that should be more talked about and more pushed. I agree that it's true, especially in acting. You often find people in younger, you know, they'll spend years as an actor and they'll find where they really fit the movie industry from yeah. that because we, you know, fall in love with the movies and what do we see are the actors. I know costume designers and production assistants and editors and sales agents that have all started as actors and then they find their way through that to where they're fit into where they're, where they're sort of best suited. Yeah, exactly. They're making movies, but, you know, from a different angle. Yeah, and I th- also think that's a, that's a really good point, the idea that, that the actors kind of, in a way, have like, the easiest part. Like, they learn their lines, they turn up, they haven't spent the seven years, the sort of, like, project. Yeah, from and a, actors do yeah. five films in a year. Actor, you're lucky to do one film every five years. You know? That's very true. So you're going to have your world premiere at South by Southwest, which is a huge film festival. But are you going out there to find distributors? Or are you going out there to sell it to, say, like a Netflix or an Amazon? Or I've, I've taken on a sales agent. Okay. I mean, I'm hoping it gets distribution. I'd love to do a remake in English. Oh. <laughs> I feel a little bit like, you know, it is... There's something about this that is um, really good for an Anglo audience. And I would love to just not have to produce again, 
you know, I mean, I cannot wait to um, be working on a project where I'm just the writer-director. I noticed on the credits you crowdfunded part of the movie as well. Did you get any soft money or any grants to help you? Or was it all self-financed? It was all it was all sort of self-financed. Wow. Well, I know. It's crazy. I'd never do it again. If you want to get something done, you know, sometimes you have to, don't you? I mean, I guess I really, I realised that I kind of just wanted to have total control mm. of the script and the, the edit. And that's also part of me discovering myself as a director. I've never made a feature film. It's one of these weird industries where you have to um, be incredibly confident and you've never mm. done, you know, mm. you don't know you can make a feature film until you've made a feature film. I realized, I guess that comes back to the confidence thing. You know, I'm, I'm sort of underconfident. You know, like now I feel like I could work with a producer. I really know myself so much better and I understand how I work with people and what nice. I need. It's a very confidence boosting exercise what I've been through in the last few years. And that's great because now I've found a, a kind of my voice. I found my myself as a director. And so I'm ready now. So, I mean, I think other directors who right away, they just work with a producer and they know they can defend their own vision. I guess I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to do that, to defend myself because I wasn't sure, I didn't know myself well enough. That was one of my, probably my biggest motivator for saying, fuck it, I'm going to just do it on my own. I mean, there can be nothing worse that you spend all this time doing a script and then somebody comes in and they're like, no, like, no, trying to sort of like change your, your vision you know maybe purely for like commercial reasons exactly and especially if you're in a position where it's like oh you know i'm so grateful to have this big producer mm. I'm, like, I'm out in the woods and you're coming and saving me and letting me make my film that maybe once again comes back to a confidence thing that then you do it without money suddenly you realize you're making <laughs> compromises anyway because you don't have money so what's your next project um i mean do you see yourself maybe moving into sort of like television if you haven't already it's interesting because the this script wanted to be a television script so many tangents, you know, and I've still got, you know, amazing scenes between Alice and Francois's mother. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's something about television that it would just be amazing to write for television just because you can really get into all the nitty gritty. Yeah. But also, but then also I, I really love cinema. So, and I do have another feature project. So that's sort of something that I've worked on for a few years as well. And is the next script going to be something completely different? Well, it, it's still a lot about kind of identity, you know, self-identity right. and how we identify, you know, our identification of the world versus how people see us and what we're supposed to be. Mm. Sort of the theme that interests me. But I, I'm also fascinated by heterosexuality. It's okay. interesting because my other script is about a trans character. Okay. I'm all over the shop. But I, I guess those themes about re- yeah, intimate relationships mm. and identity, self-identity versus the identity the world gives us versus who we really are has always fascinated me. My final question, a fun question uh, say they're going to give you like 200 million dollars what would be your uh, dream project when i think about big budget and dream pro- i mean i really think about certain actors i'd love to work with i right. mean i really write for actors okay. i really do coming from the theater and also you know i'm very interested in intimate character studies that's mm-hmm. that's what i that that's what turns me on that's what i love the most is really great interesting character studies and god if you know you have the lead with this sort of this actress who has such an incredible presence and brings so much to the screen and right. imagine working with this actor or this cinematographer you know i mean mm-hmm. no matter how big the budget i still think there needs to be some intimate right personal, interesting story mm-hmm. otherwise who cares so there you have it I had a great time chatting with josephine please do like and subscribe to the show on soundcloud and youtube and drop a comment or two and you can get in touch with me at the salmoning one on instagram thank you so much for listening i've been tom and i'll catch up with you next episode